0: Julian, you wrote, I'm sick
1: of
2: people telling me that I have promise. Adam, you wrote, I think I need to accept that my life isn't going to be very exciting. You don't know. I'm gonna be on television. I got a call and an application and- Come on, Ma.
0: Maybe you're not, but you're definitely gonna be at the podcast. I'm George from Austria.
3: I'm Kurt from the UK. I'm
1: Bea from Portugal. And today we are discussing The Whale, Requiem for a Dream and Vortex. Kicking it off with The Whale. What were you
3: guys' thoughts on it?
0: I assume you guys are pretty familiar with Aronofsky's filmography.
3: I haven't seen all of them, but I've, I've seen enough. Yes,
2: yeah, I'm
0: I watched The Whale first at the Viennale Film Festival last year. And I was super excited for it. Seen all of his other movies before. Big fan of his. I don't think he is quite the most consistent director. I have my fair amount of problems with some of his other films. But I absolutely fell in love with this. I think now coming back to the movie, some parts of it definitely were... Due to uh, the general experience of being at a big film festival for the first time, being in a 700 people crowd experiencing a movie for the first time, um, having this general feeling of community there. But I still love it. I still got very emotional this time around. I've heard quite some criticism about this movie since then. And I gotta say, I have some arguments about, against some of the criticisms made, but I'm looking forward to what you guys think of it.
3: I actually didn't see this for a while. I think it ended up being on my top ten films of last year, but that's, like, completely in retrospect. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I didn't get around to actually seeing it last year. All I had known about this film was, one, it was Aronofsky, who i like maybe a grand total of one or two movies from <laughs> so i wasn't racing to see it also i love brendan fraser but it did feel like people were overpraising his performance simply because it was a comeback mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you know i wasn't rushing to see it then either So, I was like, yeah, you know, it's whatever, I'll get round to it when I get round to it. So, earlier this year, I eventually watched it with my girlfriend, and I really like it. Like, a lot. I think it's my favourite Aronofsky. Mm -hmm. The hype behind Brendan Fraser's performance is completely justified. Completely. It's not just a comeback performance. It is a great performance. Oh, for sure. I think I said this when we were talking about the Oscars before, but I think his performance is easily the best thing about the entire movie. And I think without it, it's nowhere near as good of a movie.
0: Yeah, I think actually you could generalize it to the performances are the best thing about this movie. Yeah, I wouldn't stop at Brendan Fraser, but I can see your point, yeah.
1: It's funny because... I do agree that Brandon Fraser's performance um, was probably, you know, the one thing that carried the movie on. But about the other ones, I don't think that they did much for, you know, improving the quality of the movie at all. Interesting. Especially Sadie Sink and the Mormon guy. I don't remember his name. Mm -hmm. Um, And the wife as well. Just the performances that were given by them felt really flat. But that didn't take away from the movie, like from me enjoying the movie. I did quite enjoy it, though uh, I had this feeling that I was watching a play because it, it is adapted from a play, right? Yeah, yeah. There was times that it was very obvious that... It was an adaptation from a play. And I couldn't take my head off it, and the vibes were off, and then I had to force myself to get back into the movie. But apart from that, I really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah. Well, I think on that, one, I disagree with the performances slightly. I do think Sadie Sink is fine. You know, she she's okay. Same with Ty Simpkins, I think his name is. He plays Thomas the Mormon, whatever. But Hong Chow, I think... I think that's how you say mm-hmm. her name. Um, and yeah, yeah, who plays I... Liz, the carer.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, she yeah, she is, is incredible.
1: Yeah. When I say the wife, I was not referring. She was the the one good performance out of, you know, apart from Brendan Fraser.
3: Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. just wanted to put that out there. But also with the mm-hmm. stage production mm-hmm. thing, I really noticed it as well. You really notice it when you kind of realize that the whole film is set basically in the one apartment. You know, when it's a stage play, you know, as a theatre kid, I can say as a stage play, it really helps when the entire thing is set in one place, right? Because it's really difficult to change locations unless you're a massive, massive production. Oh, yeah, sure. So that makes sense for the stage show, and it would work really well for a stage show. Mm -hmm. However, in a film, unless that one location is giving you a lot, it's hard. It's really difficult. And in this... In this film, the location is really boring. It's not even sad, you know, like how I would expect it to be. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of nothing. And it could have been so much better.
0: But here's the thing. I heard that criticism before, and I totally agree that you can feel it was obviously a theater piece before. It is all taking place in that one location, basically. but. I feel like that really adds to and works for this story. The whole thing about it is that this one room is basically his world. He can't really leave it anymore. He is tied to those four walls, basically. He can't, you know, he's he's not physically able to get up and... Adventure around or whatever—that's his environment. So it totally makes sense that yeah, it, it makes traps sense. us in there with
3: him. I'm okay with it being one location. My problem is is that mm. it's that location. That's the set that yeah, they it's built. it's more
1: of the an, an execution problem. Yeah, I just
3: I just feel yeah. like the, either the location isn't great or Aronofsky himself didn't present it in a way that was pleasing either. If that makes sense. You know, I just don't, I don't feel like it was... Maybe. You know, if you swapped out that apartment for any other apartment, it wouldn't have made a difference. And I feel like, because he's stuck in that apartment, it should feel like its own character. You know, like it should be an important part of the story because that is his world. You should not be able to just exchange that apartment for, say, the fucking Friends Studio apartment. And it'd be exactly the same. I feel like the apartment should mm-hmm. be integral to the story, and I don't think it is.
0: Yeah, I could... I, I don't really have an argument against it, to be honest. Um, I, I don't have a problem with it either, so, though, so... I.
3: To me, it's like... Imagine if a Batman film was set in just regular New York, rather than Gotham. You know what I mean? Like, Gotham is its own thing. Mm-hmm. So though it may not be the most interesting part of the movie, it it's necessary. You know, the backdrop is, is part of the personality. And yeah, I, I think see. it's the same I in the world. The apartment should be the Gotham. But it isn't. It's just New York.
0: Mm-hmm. At the same time, I feel like uh, Charlie as a character is very much portrayed as someone who just wants the most basic necessities around him to make ends meet because he has other goals you know he doesn't want to spend money he wants to save up that money for his daughter he he doesn't splurge he, he doesn't like ever get himself something special so it kind of makes sense that it is a bland whatever apartment he just needs something i, that. I mean i just i'm just head, thinking basically.
3: like in my head trying to remember that apartment i couldn't pick out one singular thing about it like i couldn't tell you what the walls look like i couldn't tell you where any shelves are or where tables and stuff are i can remember literally where the tv is and the kitchen
1: i can't remember where the tv is i'm like like... i remember where the sofa is i remember the dining (laughs) table the kitchen the shelf the other sofa and then you mentioned the tv and i'm like yeah where where yeah it's (laughs) it's just so
3: lacking i I feel like you know it doesn't have to be a crazy production or anything i think it maybe it's to do with the lighting maybe Mm -hmm. like i get it's supposed to be dark and dingy and Whatever, but there's a way to do that and also make it appealing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I didn't have any problems with that, but I can see how it would be.
3: But honestly, other than that, I don't, I don't really have much criticism for the film. I, I don't think the the script is too strong. I think it's absolutely carried by the performances, mm-hmm. and I don't think the directing is necessarily great. I think it's very boring and bland. At, most points yeah. I and again it's, it's the, yeah. absolutely aided by the performances it's a completely performance driven film and i think aronofsky landed very lucky getting the actors that he did so but
0: you can definitely give him some credit for casting those people oh yeah like, it's not it's not the first thing that comes to mind to cast brendan Fraser for that role you know it's a very emotionally exhausting performance and you would probably have other actors come to mind first and somehow he got the idea and found like the the perfect fit in brendan fraser so i i still think that's part of directing that kind of gets underappreciated
3: on that note just real quick because i also was thinking about that the entire time because I i saw a clip of brendan fraser talking about being cast in that film and it was Aronofsky just insisting that he's the one he wants, mm-hmm. which is crazy to have that foresight. To all due credit to him, but um, who who would you have cast? Dream cast like for Charlie?
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I don't. I can't really see anyone other than Brandon Fraser and as Charlie now <laughs> in a retro perspective. I'm um, I'm really struggling to to come up with the- someone.
3: See, because this is what's crazy is, I in the perfect cast in my head for Charlie, um, I mean, sadly, he's passed, but Philip to Seymour. me, yeah, Philip Seymour. I was oh, just yeah. thinking yeah. of that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's absolutely Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, And to it think is. that Brennan Fraser is in that same conversation as Philip Seymour Hoffman.
0: It's insane. Yeah. yeah,
3: is genuinely insane. Because that's one of the... He's one of the best actors of all time. Yeah, for sure. He's one of the most underappreciated, but definitely one of the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's huge praise to Brendan Fraser to even be there.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But yeah, i I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman would have brought an absolute.
0: Yeah. True. True.
1: Raw hey, it would be really
3: yeah. I think it would have been a different movie, honestly. Yeah. Better. Better. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know. That's. We, we will never know, but it definitely would have been a different movie, but that's straight away who I thought was perfect for that role, other than Brendan Fraser.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. One more thing about the presentation that I can get into before we get to spoiler talk. I heard the criticism before that the aspect ratio seemed random and just forcefully trying to be artsy. Whilst lacking in other artful Mm. departments. Uh, And I fully disagree with the statement. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same. Not only do I think it is okay to just pick whatever aspect ratio you'd like, you don't necessarily need to have an explanation for it. Yeah. But I also feel like this movie has a strong reason to use a narrow aspect (laughs) ratio for the pure fact that. There's so many shots in this movie where Brandon Fraser's body pretty much and like he he spans over the whole film. There's yeah. there's shots where they mm-hmm. are pretty wide, but they manage to fill the screen from left to right just with Brandon Fraser's body, which you well, couldn't yeah. at all do in CinemaScope. And just this percent-wise big amount of screen he takes over with his body just makes him. Feel that much bigger. It it adds so much to the yeah to the I whole think it's,
3: thing. It's to one emphasize Brendan Fraser's uh, size in that film. Mm-hmm. Not Brendan Fraser's size, Charlie's size. Charlie's size. Yeah. It's also to make the whole film claustrophobic. Yeah, feels I feel small. Like, yeah, it, sure. the whole film feels tiny because that's what his world is. Mm-hmm. You know, his friend circles tiny. The apartment is tiny. You know, everything about it is just small because he is so large.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I feel like the aspect ratio really sells that, but also exactly what you just said. Even if that wasn't the reason, who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> if you wanna make if you wanna make a film in that aspect ratio, do it. Who cares? No one no one complained when Zack Schneider did it for the Schneider Cup, which absolutely has no reason to. <laughs> It's black and white, in, in like four three, like it's so it doesn't need to be. Yeah, it's a Batman and Superman movie, but he wanted to, and no one cared. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know why that's suddenly a problem, but yeah, no, it's stupid. It's an awful criticism of the film. Mm-hmm. I think there's many valid criticisms of this film, and that is not one of them, even in the slightest. Yeah, I think that the costume design is crazy yeah like the fat suit that they have for charlie Mm -hmm. is ridiculously good Mm. i think it's genuinely the best fat suit i've ever seen oh yeah because it's obviously um digitally enhanced like Mm -hmm. you know they they use a bit of visual effects to help
0: in particular because they they also fatted up his face and yeah. they had to hide sometimes some seams where even if you do it perfectly with makeup, if he moves in the wrong way, the seam will yeah. like, open up for a bit. Yeah,
3: or like pull or mm-hmm. something like yeah. that. Yeah, like the, the, the way they did that is absolutely fantastic.
0: It's just a great understanding of using different methods to get the result you know they are obviously fantastic with makeup and they are obviously fantastic with costumes but they still needed visual effects to not show us visual effects per se but to hide other things
3: but this is the thing like there's always this war between practical and cgi and stuff like that and i i feel like films are at their best when they use both Mm -hmm. you know use them both where it most makes sense like, because if they did this film, and Charlie was pretty much a fully CGI fatsu, it, it would, have... would probably look horrendous. Yeah, it horrendous.
0: would fall apart, for sure.
3: But if it was fully practical, it would look like fucking Norbit. Like, it would look really bad.
0: It would probably because feel way more than a stage play again, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be really obvious, and it wouldn't sell as well. And the thing with this film is, you can't have any cracks in that. Because everything hinges on it. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you kind of recognize that the fat suit isn't real, it's gone. You know, you've pulled up the magic curtain. The marriage between the practical effects and the CGI is ingenious, and if that is also an Aronofsky decision, which it obviously probably is, it's more credit to him again.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're we doing spoilers.
3: I guess so. Spoilers.
0: The, the only other real criticism I picked up on this time around that I had with the story side of it was, I feel like the daughter's introduction is very abrupt. I didn't realize the first time yeah. around, but she she kind of just shows up and is instantly mad at him for basically saying, why should I even care to visit you? but. In that moment, she is here. She obviously cared enough to yeah. visit him. But mm-hmm. she instantly wants to leave unless something other happens. So um, if he wouldn't have offered her money, she would have been out in like three minutes, basically. Why Why did she even then come here in the first place? Did she expect uh. him to pay her? It's it's a bit weird. And she's just like, think- forced in there. And once that is done... I feel like everything between them works great. I just think, like, the first five minutes of her in the story are weird.
1: I think she goes because a mother probably told her to, right? No, the mother Um, doesn't
3: know. No, the mother doesn't know. That's, like, the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. Because the mother doesn't want her to see him.
0: Yeah. She does this behind the back of the mother.
3: Yeah, then she probably does have some curiosity,
1: you know, to get in touch with her father.
0: Mm-hmm. And just doesn't want to admit it. Maybe. And then
1: just, yeah, doesn't want to admit it. You know, she's a brat,
3: so...
2: <laughs> she is,
0: is think,
3: what do yeah, you yeah. mean? This, yeah. is, <laughs> this is the thing, right? I'd Like, I don't have much to say about that one specific thing. The daughter character, just in general, Ellie, that's her name, sorry.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't get it. Like. Is she evil? <laughs> because the movie's obviously trying to tell you she's not. But also, she kind of is. Yeah.
0: I think the movie is kind of telling us that she is, but to show us the, basically, infinite positivity of Charlie. That, sh- that even in her worst doings, he's still th- seeing the positive sides, as in, I saw it as that, when she when she contacts the parents of the Mormon guy and, you know, sends the, um, the voice message with him saying, yeah, I stole that money and then I ran away and all of that. I kind of have a hard time believing that she did it for anything other than blackmailing him or like being evil. <laughs> but Charlie has no problem seeing the positives in it. I feel like it's all mainly to portray how infinitely positive he is
3: i can can definitely see that
1: not only that for people there are two sides and that people can choose to act on and we have this character there's that is always making the bad decisions and always choosing to put bad into the world by contrast we have charlie that as you said like he is he has this infinite never-ending positivity he's never tired of pushing and trying to break the walls that his daughter is um, is building you know she's growing up and building these walls just playing bad just you know trying to be trying to be a baddie so he knows that behind that facade there is good there is the little girl that he created that he parented all this time you know There are two sides to people and people do choose what side they want to show. And he's a believer that he can get her to show you know, the deep side of her. Mm -hmm. And you know, the little girl that wrote that
3: essay. On the topic of that essay, that essay is not great. Like, (laughs) I, I get it. But also, it's fine. Like, the big reveal is that, oh, yeah, this essay is actually written by Ellie, mm-hmm. right? And then that's like the, whoa, she wrote that when she was, like, 14. Oh, no. It's it's not that special.
1: Oh, it's I, not that it's special. Like, oh, my God, she's such a good writer. It's more of a, she's putting her opinion, you know, she's being hon- honest. And that's why it is special. Not I because, get that, you know, but Charlie also writing. says...
3: Yeah, Charlie says it's the best essay like he's ever read or something like that.
0: Yeah, I I don't think that he means in a literal sense of this is the best literature put out of context if you just give it a critic. I think to him with all the context he has and knowing who is behind it and what it means that that's the the most important piece of, of literature to him, you know? Yeah, I'd, I think I took it's it more about as that. the.
1: Yeah, it's about the the honesty again. Mm-hmm. That is a factor that is important for him when it comes to writing, and you know it comes from his daughter, so it's Fuck that. probably that gets really special.
3: What? She gets a C plus, bro. <laughs> C plus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Fuck that.
0: What was that whole uh, the essay's hers a reveal to you guys? Because yeah, I no. You, you you saw it coming yeah okay interesting cuz it worked for me i fully expected that the essay was written by his ex lover that's that's where my mind went to and i heard a lot of people saying the th- same thing but w- what did you how did you pick it up what did you find out
3: um i mean one i think it's a very obvious stage play thing to do Okay, because this is the thing, right? So, being a theatre kid, blah, blah, blah. I knew that the essay was going to be somebody that he knows. Mm-hmm. Had to have been, yeah. right? They wouldn't keep bringing back this motif of a random essay on Moby Dick, unless it was something that was very, very important to him. So it has to be someone he knows. Obviously, it's not the Mormon kid. It's yeah. not going to be Dan, the pizza delivery guy. Right? <laughs> it's <laughs> It's not going to be Liz, quite obviously. So, you were left with three options, right? You were either the mother of his kid, his dead husband, or just partner. boyfriend. Yeah. yeah, just I thought
1: his... it was his. Yeah, like, his something he wrote. Partner. No, no, no. Something he wrote.
3: What? Charlie? Yeah. Oh, it wasn't going to be Charlie. I knew it wasn't going to be Charlie, just because I, I don't think he has almost the self-confidence yeah the ego where something mm. that, yeah something that he wrote would make him feel better uh i didn't
1: give it i didn't give it much importance at the time mm-hmm. um yeah i so it was like a, a revelation for me uh, that it was her um her writing
0: so so you kind of just went through the the possible options and you came to the conclusion yourself crit is what you're trying to say.
3: Yeah, like so. Obviously, I just knew it was someone going to be close to him, mm-hmm. and then eventually, when he started to get his daughter to write herself, mm. and he was very in, uh, insisting on her writing, I looked at my girlfriend and I was like, Oh, it's going to be her essay, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. you know, he I don't think he would push her so hard to write something unless he had already known that she could write something great.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, something great and honest. I can see that, yeah. Because obviously, as you said, the the main draw of her essay is the honesty of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's trying to pull out of her again. Yeah. It's just for her to write something honest. So yeah, I'd, uh, I just kind of pieced it together.
0: Yeah, because here's the the big shocker. Apparently, I didn't pay attention this time around to, to check, but uh, I was told when you first see the essay the piece of paper he's reading from you can actually see the name in the corner saying ellie (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I, i i heard of somebody who who from the first minute spotted the name and before she was even introduced (laughs) <laughs> he knew who wrote yes it's a...
3: okay that's fine yeah no I didn't notice that yeah I yeah, okay. didn't me neither <laughs> yeah same
0: <laughs> but if uh, people who are really really careful with details they might have spoiled themselves <laughs> I think one of the more interesting sides of this whole story is the thought that I had that not only is obesity a really weird addiction to tackle so if you compare it to Let's say a requiem for a dream, where he tackled heroin addiction. If someone manages to quit his heroin addiction, they are free to never touch an opioid again. Like obviously, their brain craves for it. They, uh, when they immediately stop, they go into withdrawal and stuff like that. But they can still, at some point, completely leave it behind when you're talking about obesity yeah obviously he doesn't need 10 twix candy bars he doesn't need the super fat pizza or whatever but he still needs food you know it's still even if you leave that behind it's necessary to kind of return for small kicks i guess it's it's a really odd it's a really odd addiction I don't know about
1: ne- necessary but like it, you're more susceptible to falling into you know because since eating is a daily habit that we all have is more susceptible to falling you know back into mm-hmm. sugar or sodas and all of that fat yeah so that's that's what I'm saying more of that yeah
0: yeah, that's what, what I'm trying to say, because even if he leaves sugar and the specifics behind and only eats healthy food, it's still food that he's consuming. So I assume the brain still gets some of that dopamine rush of, oh, we're returning to this now. Anytime oh, he I don't picks think so. Food.
1: With the, I don't think it's any food. I think it's probably very much towards the comfort food. Okay. and portions i Maybe. think that's the problem with the obesity but i'm, I'm not quite sure but mm-hmm. that's my idea of it okay uh, because you know if you're eating a salad it's not gonna get a kick of it it's gonna be like mm-hmm. you know sad and this brain is probably pushing him towards you know eating something more exciting
3: i mean yeah there's you know the whole part where they fucking film him like a universal monster you know during the third yeah. act when he's yeah. just eating crazy and just throwing mad different combinations together Mm -hmm. you know i think it is about just trying to eat as much as he possibly can of anything that he can get and i think that's just an exaggeration of the general issue Mm -hmm. yeah you know he's just speeding up what he's been doing anyway
0: i also think it's kind of fascinating that I can't really recall any other movie really tackling this problem before. don't know if obesity I, yeah mm. don't know if something comes to your minds, but if you compare it to other addictions, like there there have been quite a few movies about heroin at this point you know <laughs> but but uh, obesity is such a common problem, and even in in nowadays with discussions surrounding like feeling feeling good about your body and where does body positivity end and toxic, you know, you're you're just amplifying a problem there. Where that, does that begin? With all these discussions going on, I'm kind of fascinated that no one really attempted to make a film about this before.
3: Yeah, not like this. I mean, there's Precious, which I don't know if either of you have seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't. Which kind of goes through that, but it doesn't really. Yeah, it's more of a side. Psych- tackle that too much, subject, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's part of it, and I don't know. Uh, the Nutty professor, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Kind of <laughs>
1: goes In into orbit. it, but but it's not like an honest portrayal. It's like you know, it's more for giggles.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's wild that that no one really ever thought they now is the time to talk about this. I like that the script opens up several smaller topics on the side. So there's this whole aspect of medical attention and uh, religious spiritual guidance, I guess. And the duality of that with the, Mm -hmm. the Mormon character. And I really like that he isn't just a punching bag in this. So it is very easy to to, you know, make fun of that character in the story. The story even does that through the the Ellie character mostly, and also through through the Liz character. Due to the, their former, you know, history with this religion and the the struggles they had, they have obvious things to be mad about. And Ellie's even hatred towards organized religion as a whole can be funny at times like there's, there's, have been moments where i laughed about those but he still gets a valid reason to believe the things he does i feel like because the thing he says is god has a reason that he sent me here and it sounds super overdramatic but if you think about it he really just arrived in that one second when charlie was home alone and basically about to die at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie yeah so he really it's it's such a miraculous coincidence that i can't really blame anyone who's even like he is a a person who believes who is a religious person i can't blame anyone for in that moment thinking yeah there's a reason to that that's not just random. yeah
3: i i absolutely understand why he would think that mm-hmm. i mean i'm I'm not really a religious person, but even I would be thinking that's kind of crazy. Yeah. You know? um, I do, however, think one little thing I don't like about that character, about Thomas, I think his name, yeah. Um, I don't like that there was that weird reveal at the end where we kind of find out that he's homophobic or whatever. I just feel like it was a bit unnecessary.
0: Hmm. I I wouldn't even say that he is homophobic. I feel like it was it was it's more, more brought up to Yeah, to it's think like that. Yeah, I I feel like he, it's more he's having an inner struggle with that topic because the religion he loves and adores so much tells him that it's wrong, but he doesn't have a problem with Charlie, so it's it's more of an inner conflict within him. He's obviously having conflicting emotions surrounding mm-hmm.
3: it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, but I'm not sure whether that really covers it. There's the moment where Charlie's recounting his relationship to Thomas, you know, when they're having that big, like, row or whatever. Mm-hmm. Thomas has this kind of thought that the reason why Alan, his partner, died was because of homosexuality, because he committed the sin, and that's why he died, mm-hmm. and he thinks that's why he's there to save Charlie, mm-hmm. you know yeah he's there to save Charlie from dying from the same fate as Alan because of the same reason, but Alan didn't die because he was a you know he was gay. I think it's okay for him to dabble in uncomfortability
4: mm-hmm.
3: but you know to to outright say and even confirm without knowing that your partner died because he was gay you know and that's the reason why you're also going to die Is fucking insane
2: I mean
1: religious people sometimes they don't have a filter it's you know Mm -hmm. I think it's played well into the you know the character giving you know that is Mormon and all Not saying that all Mormons, you know, are like this, but that's what I expect. Like, I'm not surprised by that comment. That's what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say.
3: Yeah, I'm not surprised by it. I just think it didn't need to... be there. It wasn't necessary to the story, is Mm -hmm. what I mean. You know, with such a tight script, you know, just trying to get through as much as they can. I feel like to also throw in there the weird relationship that Christianity or Catholicism or whatever has... Mm -hmm. with homosexuality is a bit much. You know, they're already trying to do way too much in that film, and then to throw that in without even really delving into it. They're just, you know, putting it there and then leaving it alone.
0: I had no problem with it. I don't feel it was too overrushed. I... Like, it... The whole thing lingers around for so long. When he, the first time, enters the thing, we already hinted at it, that they are all familiar with new life or whatever they call it and that they all have former history with that so i I, you you can connect the dots at that point easily for yourself that yeah there there was some problem with new life and homosexuality i i didn't feel like it was out of the blue when they brought it up
3: no i don't think it was out of the blue i just don't think it developed Yeah, I don't think it was developed anywhere near enough. Like, I get the whole point of the church group having problems with homosexuality, which led to Alan's death, that's fine. But, as we know, Thomas isn't representative of that group. You know? he. Yeah, but he still still tries
0: to be representative of it. Like, he he officially isn't on paper, but he's still going around and doing the things that he believes are the right thing for no, the no, church. No. I
3: don't mean literally, I mean like he as a character, you know because New Life is a character in itself mm-hmm. and then Thomas is a character that's why we get so much backstory with him and his parents and he has just so much individual development that I think lumping him in with New Life as well it it's not enough not enough in the
1: sense of, like,
3: for hi- it. I, I'm, oh, for I, him to I be can't... a
1: representative of the. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. he's
3: either himself or he is new life. I don't think, I don't think with this story you can afford to do both.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. To me, it worked. That's all I yeah, really. Can. I, I
1: didn't give that much thought into that connection between Thomas and uh, the organization. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for me, it was more of a decoration. Even the character, uh, Thomas, felt like decoration for me.
3: I mean, that's
0: fine. One last thing I want to say is that I heard the the phrase misery porn being thrown around for this movie. Mm. And uh, not only is it one of those phrases that I hate, um, (laughs) but I also don't think this movie is at all both times watching this in the cinema the crowd had some really funny moments like this there's, there's moments like when when he's backing up to the wheelchair yeah, like, and she's making the about, truck yeah. noises the truck noise yeah. yeah there's the whole haiku she reads where not only is it kind of funny because you didn't expect her to be that rude in the first place but then his realization that it all adds up to a haiku with like the proper amounts of syllables and stuff That was super funny to me. I think this movie has by far enough humor and things to mix it up to not be considered misery porn.
3: What does that even mean, though? Like, like what does it mean? Like, because who who cares? (laughs) Aren't horror films just fear porn? Right? Isn't comedies just humor porn? (laughs) Like, you're allowed to feel miserable. A film yeah. is allowed to make you feel sad. Yeah. Why is that bad? I don't I think understand. when it's... people
1: mention it, it's like
3: more of an over-exaggeration
1: uh, mm-hmm. of the misery that probably doesn't serve the story, which I don't agree. Like, I think it's all pretty balanced. Uh, Charlie's suffering and contrasting with this positivity at the same time. I think it's fine. I don't, I don't <laughs> see
3: the, the porn here. <laughs> <laughs> i just i just think it's so stupid like it's such a ridiculous argument to make about any film yeah yeah ever. i
1: don't like to use that yeah mm-hmm.
3: like who would say that about shinless list nobody but that movie i'd say is 10 times more miserable than this film yeah yeah uh it just oh, it's such a dumb thing to say mm-hmm. people are so stupid on the internet <laughs>
0: You said earlier that the script is not that special. I feel like it's a very small story, but the way it is told is just fantastic. The way everything culminates in that final shot is is amazing to me. All the small arcs they open up with. Oh, the, the poem uh, the the essay was hers. The he is standing up and going towards her. The obvious ending of we all knew he was gonna die is happening. He is mm. finally connecting with her in that scene. And as well, just with a really small but effective visual, in my opinion. She's opening up the door first. And even at that stage we we kind of illuminate the room and he is standing basically in the spotlight and going towards the light mm, literally. The light, yeah. yeah. And then the obvious him floating up into the sky is a kind of beautiful Contrast to to him always being tied to the ground early on. Yeah.
1: I was just gonna add that throughout the movie, it has always been rainy, gloomy weather, dark and gray skies. And for for the first time, we see the sun like mm-hmm. shining that bright. True. So it was also, um yeah, a nice contrast there as well. Death feels light.
3: I'm going to just say, I don't like the ending. Oh, really? I nearly love it. Up until the moment where he floats. I hate that. Mm. If it were me. Because I think, I think him walking towards the sunny day, his daughter in the doorway representing heaven or whatever, is enough. Mm-hmm. to You know? And then I think just before the moment, you know, that moment where he hits him and then he starts floating or whatever i think instead of having that moment it should have just cut to black
1: i like it because it represents you know the weightlessness that he's feeling right right then you know he's dying and he's leaving everything behind i, I think it's a good moment him feeling lightweight and just mm. you know ascending like that
0: but i guess it's it's I mean, a matter it's of taste at that point
1: yeah yeah i think so i cried a lot
0: <laughs> yeah, same.
2: <laughs> like I didn't I cry cried. a lot
1: towards towards the you know like during the movie, but that ending I don't know it just hit me.
0: Yeah, that ending and the first time watching it in in like that setting with all those people that just fucked me up. <laughs> cool. Yeah,
1: I can yeah. imagine.
3: As someone that cries at nearly every movie, I didn't actually cry at this one.
2: <gasps>
3: Crazy. I know. All right, let's
0: do ratings. The first time around, this was probably one of my mo- most emotional experiences in cinema ever, so I-, I gave it a 10. I see some problems with it now. It's down to a 9 for me, but I still love it a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a 7.5 for me. Their performances, paired with the ending, made the movie for me. Uh, so, yeah, 7.5.
3: And I'm going to drop it on an 8. I think it's a film pretty much entirely dependent on the performances. Mm -hmm. And luckily, pretty much all the performances are like a 10. So, yeah, I'm going to give it like an 8, I'd say.
0: All right. Which brings us to Requiem for a Dream, the 2000-released Darren Aronofsky movie, following addiction in a few different aspects. What are your first thoughts, guys?
1: Yeah, Wrecking for a Dream. So my first time watching this movie was probably when I was 14, you know, feeling emo. And I really, really enjoyed it, you know. The editing is just, you know, it's just so fast. The fast pacing, the creativity. It's very appealing to a teenager. Watching it now, I was kind of disappointed because it felt more like an advertisement for don't do drugs kids and although like I did enjoy my viewing of it I didn't feel that awe that I felt when I was 13 14 you know it was probably the first movie that gave me Editing like that, that editing could be done like that, that you could cut scenes so frenetically. So watching it now, I still feel that the overall cinematography of it, you know, all the technical aspects of it still stand and are still very effective. But as a story, it feels like a, a pamphlet, I guess. It just took away from my experience. I didn't get the dread. I didn't get the adrenaline from watching it as I did some years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was. Ah! I ah, forgot the word again! Wait. So it was a disappointing rewatch of the movie for me. What about you guys?
3: This is a film that I think is fantastic. I think the performances are probably the best in any Aronofsky film. I think the editing is. One of the best edited films I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I think the script is incredible. You know it's a good film when Jared Leto even gives a brilliant performance. <laughs> but I never want to see this film ever again. I do not care about it in the slightest. Like yeah. I finished it and I was like, okay. Cool. I just don't connect in any way. Like I I don't understand why. Like' cause I can see from a technical aspect how brilliant it really is, but it's kind of like a film I'm never gonna see again. I will never have an urge to. Mm-hmm. It does feel like be said like a pamphlet, you know it feels like a a drug p s a that was really well made yeah I don't know I'm just I'm over it. I feel like I would have really loved it if I was like fourteen.
1: It felt groundbreaking at at fourteen, you know.
2: Mm -hmm. yeah it's like
1: you're watching something really dark do you guys know christian f uh yeah you know it's yeah the german one i wonder if i'm gonna like that movie as well uh like now as a 25 year old because back then i enjoyed the movie but i don't know if i conflicted me enjoying the movie versus me being shocked by what the movie was portraying i don't know if it will play the same Mm -hmm. Because I held these two movies at the same level. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
3: I'll just put it this way. If Requiem for a Dream came out now, the internet would call it misery porn. (laughs) (laughs) Addiction porn.
0: (laughs) I only watched this the first time a few years ago, so I was quite a bit older. Interestingly enough, I was a bit underwhelmed the first time around. Like, I saw the intensity in it, and I, I felt the energy, and I kind of understood why it is as acclaimed as it is. I still thought that some of the stylization felt over the top and unnecessary. It kind of was the other way around with me this time, where, returning to it, I appreciated the stylization more than I did back then. I, I still can see some of your points as in, I am not really eager to return to it either. If I would want to rewatch uh, an older heroin movie, I would probably go train spotting instead.
3: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I couldn't even truly put my finger on it as to why. But maybe it is just that, that it is very much a drug PSA. And I don't even think that Aronofsky tried to do that. I feel like Aronofsky just tried to make a dark story about drug abuse and it just turned out that dark that it happens to be one of the best drug PSAs ever made, you know? Yeah, it is. It is.
1: It is. But I don't know if it stands as a, you know, a movie that you care
3: about. Mm -hmm. I probably have like one character that I I care about. I'm just going to guess. Is that Sarah, the mother? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just want to put out that the fact that Ellen Burstyn or something like that. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn. The fact that she did not win an Oscar for this film is outrageous.
4: Mm.
3: Her performance is easily the best. And that's that's really high praise considering that every performance in this film is great. Every single performance is incredible. But she's just like, she's in a different movie.
1: She is. I, I think by miles. I, they're not on the same level.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Jared Lito, he gives an okay performance. He's there.
0: I feel like it's still his best performance I've seen in his... his. It's his best. Yeah.
1: No, you guys are forgetting Blade Runner 2049, where, you know, he's just there, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean he,
0: works really, <laughs> he, he works really well in Blade Runner 2049. I'm not denying that. I feel like he did more here.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, he has, like, three lines in Blade Runner. Yeah. So. I went in Fight Club yeah. as well. Was yeah. There, but he was, nah. yeah, he's fine in Fight Club.
0: I think the one thing about this, like, the connecting these three performances is that they are made for a fantastic director, you know? That's kind of the, the one thing yeah. that unites them. I feel mm. like it really shows that uh, Jared Leto is one of those actors that just needs a good director to guide him.
3: Yeah, like he needs something.
0: There's actors that are independently great, whatever you throw at them. I feel like we mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman earlier. Yeah. I don't think there's a bad Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, so it's probably just no, his, his class that. that that carries all of that. But there's these actors that really have some good performances, and I would say this is a really good performance by Jared Leto, even if it's not on par with his mother character.
3: I think, honestly, the most most interesting, though, performance, rather, not because of the quality of it, but just in general, is Mullen Wayans. He plays Tyrone.
0: Because it's the only other one next to a scary movie, right? Like, his only other big role, isn't it?
3: Well, no, he has plenty of big roles. He, You know, he's in a lot of comedy movies. And he's really good at comedy. You know, he's in White Chicks, obviously a Scary Movie, did A Haunted House. Oh, he's in Air now. He's in pretty big films. But this is his only real dramatic role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. He's really fantastic. And to say that you know, just before this, the only other... I mean, this came out the same year as Scary Movie, by yeah. the way. This a Scary Movie came out the <laughs> same year. the duality. <laughs> which is like a crazy year for this man. Yeah.
0: yeah. He instantly, he was like, okay, I'm gonna establish myself now, but I'm not gonna be typecast, you motherfuckers. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna start on both <laughs> ends of the spectrum.
3: <laughs> it's so interesting that he never went back to do something like this, to do a dramatic role, mm-hmm. it's a standout. I mean, that that one scene. Oh, actually, I sh- yeah, that's spoiler territory. I probably shouldn't. Go I mean, to that, but there's I, just.
0: I guess we can we can go into spoiler territory. I don't think that's. It's
3: not massive spoilers anyway. Yeah. It's just a scene where he's running away from something that's oh, yeah, happened. Oh yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And just his it's acting starting. in those few seconds alone really stuck with me. Like I'm sitting here and I'm trying to think of like scenes from the film, very like specific scenes that like stuck with me. And that's one of the top three.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: I like when he's alone as well. I don't know. It just gives me the sense of being a different person. The inner uh, realm of him trying to be a good son for, you know, uh, in his mother's memory. I can see and I can feel that sadness of not being enough when he's alone.
3: Yeah, I wish I wish that storyline of him and his mother, like his past mother, was more developed. Mm-hmm. I wish that Sam. was a bigger plot line than it is. Um, I, it's it's really interesting, and I think I think Marlon Wayans had more to give. Mm-hmm. I
1: would say that apart from Sarah's character, the other three. Are not given as much love. No. Do you guys agree? No,
3: No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, Sarah's Massively. character is
0: definitely getting the most.
3: Yeah. I feel like, to be fair, it's also for good reason. Mm-hmm. Because she's clearly giving the best performance. Performance, yeah. And so... also... The... But I mean,
1: you would write the movie, you know.
0: Also, if you split it up in, like, general parts of Addiction, it's trying to portray. The other three are kind of... Uh, sharing you know they they are sharing problems with their addictions you know there's a big overlap they are exploring different parts of it through those three characters but it's still one major thing in it whilst the mother character is a completely separate thing and everything we try to explore about that part of addiction we can only explore through the mother so it makes sense that she takes over a bigger part yeah
3: i feel like it's it's less about the individual stories and more about the types of addiction
0: exactly yeah Mm
3: -hmm. yeah Um, man she's just absolutely killing it i i guess going into spoiler territory but I love the scene where Harry, Jared Leto's character, is talking to his mom at the table, mm-hmm. you know, when he yeah. goes to see her, oh, just after yeah. she starts on the diet yeah. pills. And he mm-hmm. starts to try and explain to her that she's an addict.
1: Yeah, she's on a bus.
3: Yeah, and that, like, kind of clicks to you, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of get it, but then seeing it through his eyes, who, you know, he already is an addict. Yeah. so he could recognize it instantly before anyone else
1: Yeah.
0: I also wrote down, that, wrote down that scene I feel like it's the best acting in the whole movie in that scene so there's this thing going on where she has basically whilst telling him about the TV and about the diet pills she takes and everything she basically has an emotional breakdown she says yeah I'm lonely I'm old i don't have anything to get up for in the morning but whilst that is going on she's also portraying being super high and fucked up on uppers like her her lip is still quivering from the drugs or from like her portrayal of the drugs as she is having that emotional breakdown and i feel like at every moment you can still see both things happening in her performance Yes. Which is insane sure.
3: I think I think the best performance in the film is also by her. But um it's the moment where she's at the TV studio.
0: Yeah, it's the bigger and- outburst for sure. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah, and I just I just feel like it's that is the climax of her entire performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the rest is kind of just the epilogue to it all. Yeah. Um but that that climax of her addiction and distress is insane, and the way they treat different addicts at different stages of their lives is super interesting to me. Like because she goes to, you know, a, a hospital, you mm-hmm. know, a mental illness hospital or whatever. But Marlon Wayne's character and all that, you know, they go to jail. Yeah, it's funny to see how how different that is. Now, depending on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. When realistically, it's the same issue.
1: Jennifer Connelly's character that, you know, has to do sex work to get her fix. Yeah.
0: He even points out early in the movie, like, she's an addict in her own domesticated, socially acceptable way, or whatever he, he says. Yeah. Uh, that really comes to play when they both get into trouble for being an addict. Like, they, they, it even happens at the same time. It's part of the fantastic editing where he gets caught by the police, I guess, and she gets in into the hospital like right at, around the same yeah, time yeah, in the movie. Yeah.
3: Also, they do just throw in a little bit of addiction to sex, which is super random, with um Keith David's character, because obviously he's selling drugs or whatever, and then Harry's trying to say, like, how can we buy it? And Tyron's saying, well, you can't. Mm-hmm. He only gives it out to, to women, you know? Because he's he's addicted True. to sex, which is crazy. And it's like such an odd thing to throw in there uh-huh. as like just a little side bit. Because then obviously he hosts those parties as well. Mm-hmm. And I just I just think like it's such a random thing for him to throw in. And also kind of ahead of its time. You know, you sex think? addiction wasn't really a massive topic yet.
0: When was the whole Tiger Woods scandal?
3: Uh, Wasn't that around 2000 also?
0: Or maybe I'm just mixing up times.
3: I have no idea, actually. I don't
1: don't even know what the scandal was.
0: Ten years later, uh, uh, timeline of Tiger Woods scandal, and it's an article of 2009. Yeah, that was around that time. Um, Yeah, Tiger Woods was was, uh, like the biggest... Golf player of all time, uh-huh, and he was yeah. married at the time, but turned out he had like affairs with two hundred women or something like that. Two hundred, yeah, 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 really. He was—he's one of the most prominent cases of sex addict. Yeah,
3: okay. I don't think that was until maybe a few years after Requiem.
1: Yeah.
0: Maybe. Yeah,
3: maybe. I feel like that was mid two thousands. But either way, you know, I just—I just feel like it was super crazy for him to tap into that. So early, at least.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure.
3: Because even if it was around the same time, to get into something so topical so quickly, mm-hmm, true, is pretty impressive. I just don't know how I really feel. I think it's great, but I also don't really. I love how surreal it gets. It kind of gives me like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind mm-hmm. vibes at times, but. I don't know, I feel like the editing and the performances again, this is like a repeat thing with Aronofsky, where I think the performances are mm-hmm. really driving the entire movie, and then in this specific case, the editing, yeah, which i don't I don't know who edited this film. Okay, it's a guy called Jay Rabinowitz, and I just I, I feel like I would give Aronofsky credit almost for that.
0: Quite a lot of it had to be decided earlier on, like in the shooting process, so had to be a decision by Darren Aronofsky. I wrote down stuff like for the for the split screen stuff, obviously like you you gotta be prepared for that. It can't be a decision that just the editor makes afterwards or yeah, that's the, true, yeah. the there's this moment when the diet of the mother starts. And you have that great sound editing and editing with just her looking at the food. Then you have that plop and the food is gone. So with one yeah. sound effect and her reaction to that, that all had to be decided before they shoot. Otherwise, they couldn't pull it off with reaction shots and, you know, the specific perspective and stuff like that. The, true. the match cuts. I
3: think... I think Aronofsky's greatest skill as a director is he puts together a really good crew. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: He knows exactly who to hire for his specific vision. Yeah. And oftentimes that vision is very specific.
4: Mm -hmm. You know,
3: the whale is very specific. This film is very specific. I mean, and he does this like even in The Wrestler, right? With Mickey Rourke, I don't know if either of you have seen it. Yes, I have. But not. It's again picking Mickey Rourke, yeah, to lead that movie in 2008 is such an ingenious idea.
0: Mm-hmm. And a- again, it it was. I think he got Oscar nominated for that. So. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he got and an, he kind an, of an Oscar nominated back. performance out of an actor nobody would have expected it from
3: so aronofsky just knows mm-hmm. who he needs and i think that's easily his greatest strength as a director because i don't think he even really has a specific style you know when you you can watch four different aronofsky films and there's not really a a link mm-hmm. throughout them you know they all feel like they could have been made by other people the only thing that draws them all in is that they all just have fantastic performances. So he must really know, one, who he needs. But two, how to direct them.
0: I feel like his movies have style, for the most part. It's not really one specific style. Like, it, you can watch Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan without knowing that they are made by the same person. And afterwards, still not realize they are made by the same person. But I would say both of these movies have a lot of style. So it's it's not like mm-hmm. anyone could make them. I couldn't think of a lot of people who could not make *Requiem for a Dream*, but it doesn't scream, "I am a Darren Aronofsky movie."
3: Yeah, that's what I mean. I, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not to say that these films don't have a style. Mm-hmm. I just don't think they have one consistent style, which makes me believe that any like all of these films are an individual case of the specific collection of people making it rather than... Because, you know, when you watch every Quentin Tarantino film, it is so fucking blindingly obvious that Tarantino is running that ship. Yeah. Like, there's no question about it. Like, it's his way from beginning to end. It just feels Tarantino. Same with Nolan, same with Fincher. But with Aronofsky, it feels definitely like a collective mind for every single film. You know, like, this film feels like a collection of also the editor's minds and the cinematographer's mind. Mm -hmm. It all just feels like a great...
0: A great composite.
3: Yeah, of all of them. Mm -hmm. And it does that for every other film. Like, The Whale feels like a really good collection of everybody's individual thoughts. And I think Aronofsky's really good at that. He's a great chef. You know, he he knows the recipe, and he knows exactly what ingredients he needs.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that analogy.
1: The thing that I can see, like, commonly throughout his movies, having just watched six of them, it's that you have this character or characters that are, that are going through something possibly feverish like a fever dream um you know exploring themselves and uh, at the same time there's like this kind of hopelessness to it i don't know if you guys felt that with black swan or uh, mother you guys mm-hmm. didn't feel you not yeah. watch the, the fountain right
2: yeah i i have
1: and like and especially here we feel that hopelessness as uh, the characters are falling into addiction and getting further further away from their dreams, their views of what a good life can be. I think that's that's him. It's you know the falling into a well. Mm-hmm. That's where the whale kind of stands from the rest because it's not falling into a well. He already fell into the well, mm-hmm. and now we have like the. The steps of rehabilitation, even though he's going to die, but he's taking steps into, you know, making things right.
0: Which also applies to the wrestler.
3: So, the, oh, I is, haven't watched that. Yeah. You should watch the wrestler. Thing. Thing. Yeah. Mm. I think the wrestler is my second favorite, Aronofsky. What's your favorite? Uh, the whale.
1: Oh. Mine is probably Mother Plex One.
0: To get to some of the visual stuff, I mm. like. A a really subtle thing that happens early on: the introduction of Marion. The first time we see her, we look down at her standing in the grass, and it's really misleading. So you you see this top-down view, almost looking down at like a little girl. She's so innocent, just you know, (laughs) being out in nature. It's absolutely the farthest from her reality we have in the whole movie um it's,
1: just... it's when she's staring at the buildings right yes exactly the crooked ones yeah, yeah.
0: and i think it's just <laughs> it's telling that how far of reality he introduces us to her without even saying a lot just like with one singular image to really Make us feel the breakdown and the depth we go with her character in specific.
1: Mm-hmm. She feels like a very light, very—I don't want—I—I I wouldn't say joyful, but she's not dipping into the addiction, right? She takes takes drugs for fun, and mm-hmm. to see that decline, um, yeah, it's kind of sad. Did you guys like Harry as a character?
3: He's fine. I think Jared Leto. Sells him the best that he could be But I don't think he's Necessarily a great character Yeah I think, I think everyone around him is more interesting I think Tyrone is a more interesting character More interesting, yeah And I think Marianne is a more interesting character I think Harry is most interesting With how he relates to his mother
1: I think I've, I think it's the opposite What do you mean? Like, I prefer um, the frantic, very, you know, teenage, teenage love that he feels for Marion. It's very hyped. It's very, I don't know, it feels like a honeymoon, that they're in a honeymoon. I prefer that part of his plot line than the way that he, you know, relates to his mother. Because I don't feel like he's really trying to, you know, make it up to his mother. I don't really feel it. I don't really feel that emotion towards his mother. Especially when he found, found out that, you know, she was taking these uppers and these pills. Uh, I felt like his, his reaction felt very, very short. I don't know.
3: No, I don't mean like, I don't think their chemistry or anything. I just think the ideas of how he relates oh. to his mother is the most mm-hmm. interesting. Like how he is an mm-hmm. addict and how, you know, she obviously berates him and stuff for doing that and oh i thought you meant like the way then, mm-hmm. you know no but then how she slips into the same thing and how yeah he can see that
0: i think there's an interesting problem going on with the general nature of the addiction where the further they go down the addiction rabbit hole the more this is their only concern you know he in his mind there isn't a lot of space for relating to other people for sh- caring about other people's problems because he's constantly having to struggle with that one problem he faces and it takes more and more of his life's energy you know
1: yeah i agree i just for example you were talking before about that scene that's one of my favorites from the movie when they both sit down mother and son uh, by the table and she's like pouring her heart out and she he can see that she's under the influence of you know these drugs that came by a very it the doctor by the way the doctor was phony right
0: yeah fuck that doctor
1: <laughs> it wasn't like real hospital thing it's probably like a clandestine uh, dietary clinic that scene where they sit down he can basically see that his mother is going through something and she's literally telling him that you know, she feels lonely that there's no reason to for her to live her life because he's not there. Her husband is not there. She doesn't, you know, why should she wash the dishes, you know? So we're getting yeah. this sense of depression from her, of hopelessness. And he just sits there. And I guess I wasn't satisfied with his reaction. I, at that point, you you would expect... Because he wasn't deep into his addiction then. Like, he was addicted, of course, because he's selling his mother's TV every week, right?
2: Yeah.
1: But I think I would have taken a step back at that point. Or I would expect him to do something different to his life in a way that, you know, it could be more aligned with his mother's life. I mean, he did make promises about, you know, dinner and all, but Mm -hmm. I don't know i just, it just felt not very I wasn't satisfied, that's it
2: yeah
0: yeah i I just took it as he can't really handle problems like these in a satisfaction satisfying way mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i I just took it as that, but i can see I can totally see how it could feel unsatisfying to mm-hmm. watch that
1: and that's part of the reason why you know his character just doesn't i can't really connect with it it's just there
0: something i i liked about the visuals as well are those two times they kind of smoothly transition in and out of like daydreaming sequences i guess so there's this one time at the beginning where they are sitting at a at a Snack something at a cafe, and a policeman is is sitting down next to him and he's playing with the idea of, you know, tossing her around his pistol. And there's the second one where Marianne is meeting her sugar daddy, not sugar daddy, psychiatrist (laughs) with Um, a lot of (laughs) quotes, yeah, (laughs) quotation mark psychiatrist. Um, and she is like. Thinking about stabbing his hand with with mm-hmm. the fork. I love how smooth that is integrated. Yeah. like those those things are almost uh, Pak Chan Wook esque. I'd say. Yeah, at at the moment. I live, love that.
1: Yeah, at the moment you don't you don't feel like you know they're slipping into the the dream realm where mm-hmm. they you know just try enacting and imagining uh, their uh, desires. So. Yeah. Like the second time I was caught up by surprise um that it was mm-hmm. an imagination and not uh real.
0: There's some more visuals that that are somewhat uh, packed on wook again you mentioned crit the the chase scene mm-hmm. where he is running away and the camera is like front mounted to his body. I don't know how they did that. Like I mean we're talking 2000 right here. There's still no small digital cameras. They were probably all filming on, on film. They gotta be, right? Like, it, it wouldn't look that good otherwise nowadays. So how even did they mount a big film camera, like, wh- half a meter away from his face to his body? Because it was obviously attached to his body. Otherwise, it w- wouldn't move that perfectly with each and every motion he mm-hmm. makes whilst running away. I'm I'm fascinated by, by the logistics behind that. And that also returns somewhat when Marian leaves the sex addict the first time. She has that same rig mounted to her. She's not running away, but we're following her to the outside yeah. where she's, I think, puking. It's filmed in the same, you know, putting us in her character way.
3: Yeah, it's the same technique. I, I love mm-hmm. those those shots anyway. I mean, one of my favorite films is Kiddlehood, which came out a few years after this, which I don't expect either of you to have seen. There's a scene exactly like that in Kiddlehood, and it only occurred to me when I was watching Requiem for a Dream that that's probably where they got the idea from. But because I grew up on this film and I really love it, you know, just watching this technique being used, you know, in this film, it just it like it made me like it a lot more. <laughs> You know, because I already have, like, a strong relation to e- to a similar scene in a different film.
0: There's also this part of the whole story, or I guess part of Darren Aronofsky's story more as a whole, with Perfect Blue.
1: Mm-hmm. The, All the scenes the, with Marianne. The and... animated movie, yeah, yeah.
0: Where there's this section in the movie when Marianne is sitting in the bathtub and screaming to herself underwater. Do you, do you know about this crit?
3: Uh, sorry, no.
0: Three years prior to this, Satoshi Kon released the animated movie Perfect Blue. Yeah. And there's a sequence in that that is shot for shot that's sitting in the bathtub scene. Aronofsky is a big fan of Perfect Blue. Like, he tried for a while to get the American publishing rights for Perfect Blue and was working on that it got, like, an American release. He wanted to get the rights to make a live-action remake of it.
1: Oh, I didn't know it was such a...
0: Yeah, yeah. he was yeah. really pushing for it. And that sadly never happened. Because I honestly think that he could could have pulled it off. It could have been a really interesting live-action remake of an anime. And really early on as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. early 2000s. Um,
1: he also did the scenes in Black Swan, am I right? Yeah, and yeah. I was
0: about to mention... Since that failed, that's how Black Swan started. Yeah, stands for. You. Black Swan is very much uh, his interpretation or reinterpretation of the story of Perfect Blue. It has a lot of parallels.
1: Damn, when a director is a fanboy.
0: Yeah, for real. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably not a single movie that is as influential on Aronofsky's career as the animated movie Perfect Blue. The only thing I have left is. I freaking love the final of where with cross-cutting between the different situations where each of those people are basically reaching their limits Mm -hmm. the scene where she gets the syringe in the hospital as Jared Leto in a cross-cut gets beat up by the police at the same moment you have the infamous yeah yeah yeah, the infamous scene, we, I don't think we even need to mention, as Marlon Wayan's character is stomping something with... I, I don't even know what he had to work there in, in the prison, but yeah, there, there's visual <laughs> comparisons to be made. Yeah, it's it's super intense. Again, something weird that I can't quite put my finger on it, I mentioned with Chunking Express in an earlier episode that... I am insanely annoyed by the music that is so repetitively used in it, whilst I can see that Requiem for a Dream kind of is just as repetitive with the Requiem, the, the actual song, the orchestral piece. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It it's gotta be just as much used as California Dreaming and Chunking Express. But I love it how it culminates here
1: exact opposite because for me here the music doesn't really have anything to add it other than you know drama and what the music stands for mm-hmm. but in shunking express the music is just a push a recalling of uh, the dream of you know leaving that place and falling in love whatever all of that mm-hmm. so i watched this movie probably 13 14 i mm-hmm. used this song for uh, a project <laughs> at school like a video editing we had like a <laughs> i don't remember the theme i think it was like natural catastrophes and i put this song there because you know I, it was in my mind i was like this is will be a dramatic song for you know
0: <laughs> volcanoes
1: erupting
0: <laughs> i can see that yeah <laughs>
1: earthquakes <gasps> Tsunamis,
2: floods.
1: <laughs> As I was watching the movie, I kept remembering the time I was editing said video, and mm-hmm. I, it just—I would crack. Like the music would come up, and I would just giggle a little bit because you know, I just remember what I used it for.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing.
1: So, what are you guys' ratings for "Vacuum for a Dream"?
0: I'm for sure the highest. Uh, the Whale and Requiem are my favorite uh, Aronofsky movies. I have both of them at a nine.
1: I had this at an eight for me, just from memory, you know?
0: But now
3: it crumbled into a six. I'm going to give it a seven, just because I can recognize that it's a great film, but I just don't feel it.
0: Mm-hmm. This brings us to Vortex, the Gaspar Noé movie originally released in 2021, the definitely slowest Gaspar Noé movie, at least of the ones that I have seen, and for sure the the least violent in his filmography, but I would argue still one of his most horrific pieces of work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I watched this movie a while back. It was definitely a surprise to encounter a movie this slow by Gaspar Noé, because we are used to, you know, exciting, shocking, very fast paced movies by, by him, you know, mm-hmm. and this one takes a very, very slow turn. turn. It's hard to watch. Um not in the sense that it's boring, because I don't think it is, but we are watching the, the routines of these two elderly uh, people who are unnamed. We slowly see them, or at least we see her, uh, she doesn't know, so I'm, I'm just going to call her she or her. <laughs> we slowly see her decaying in her illness or dementia, even if it was in a more hasty movie, we would still feel that, but here Gaspar Noé chooses to portray her loneliness, her feelings of being lost in this apartment that just frames the entire movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's her the world that she knew and the world that she's, she has known for, you know, her life and Now she's feeling lost in her own world. And it's really heartbreaking to watch this movie and put ourselves in their position or the position of the husband that is sometimes dismissing because he has a lot of things going on. It's extremely raw. I feel like it's very raw. We get these performances from both uh, Dario Argento and... Uh, Françoise Lebrun that just hit home in a way that it shouldn't but it does and it's beautiful that they were able to accomplish such a close to life representation of what elderly people might go through at the end of their lives
3: (laughs) I will just put it out there that I'm not the biggest fan of French films just in general I've I've seen maybe a grand total of, like, two <laughs> French films that I really like. I oh, know. I think it might just be the the English in me. But just me me and the French, we, you know, we've never really clicked.
1: Not into baguettes?
3: <laughs> not really. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not my bread of choice. I'm, I'm always nervous going into a, a French film. But this means that I've never actually seen a Gaspar, um, Gaspar Noé film despite being told to see um climax and irreversible a million times. Mm-hmm. Um I just you know, it's never been for me and I've always avoided it because I know these are beloved films and I don't want to be that guy. I just I don't like this film. I'd like I don't hate it for you know, and I, I think it's amazing. I think it's incredibly well done. I just don't like it. I mean, maybe it's because I've never experienced anything like this. I've never known anyone to have dementia. Mm -hmm. I don't really know anyone that old. I have one grandparent who's been around my whole life. And she's completely fine. She's (laughs) very healthy and very active and stuff. So the relatability of it kind of just falls on deaf ears for me. I feel like... The film hinges a lot on that, because you are just watching over two hours, bearing in mind, it's like two hours 20, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. It is just two hours 20 of watching someone suffer from dementia, and watching someone like their partner deal with them having dementia. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. Because it's not like The Whale, you know, like... Obesity and stuff is a much more common problem, I'd say. But even still, it's a much shorter film. And they play around with a lot of different ways that this one thing affects people. You know, it affects the carers and how it affected the partner and how it affects the daughter, how it affects him and the relationship with his wife and all this. But in this film, it's like it's very much centered around these two and then partially their son. (laughs) I feel like I don't have a horse in this race. It's really sad, it is And it's heartbreaking, but It's more exhausting to me than anything Mm -hmm. By, I'd say, about the hour and a half Mark, I was thinking, like, okay, I get it She has dementia, like, I understand Like, I think it's maybe the first 20 to 25 minutes Basically Nothing happens I get, like, it's trying to Add in that slice of life yeah for sure. you know um aspect to the film, and I love that. I love slice of life or showing the beauty and the mundane and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it's too much of it. you know for 25 minutes, all I've seen is her get up and then leave and just walk around, and then him get up and go and find her. And it's 25 minutes. It's too much. I feel like this film is too much of one thing. And it's one thing that I don't have any experience or relation to. Mm -hmm. So it just doesn't hit me. It just feels exhausting.
0: I can imagine that if you don't have any personal relation to the problems portrayed, then I can see how... It mainly ends up being an exhausting experience, for sure. I have seen this the first time in cinemas, which always helps a lot with slower movies, even though, like, the commitment to go to a really slow movie and pay money for it is obviously something else. But just being locked in that dark room, no possible way to distract yourself, really puts you into that place where you can't escape. So that helped a lot. I feel like my first watch. I'm b- pretty much the opposite, where I love a lot of French cinema. So I already, both in both in the ways of the more extreme, um, violent cinema that people like Gaspar Noé or, or more recently uh, Julia Ducournau made, but also also the art house slower side of things i did however not really expect anything as as beer put it by Gaspar noé to do that and do it that well it it really feels like he stepped out of his comfort zone in a bit and fully succeeded in my opinion and that also without ever giving up on the creative vision that his better movies always have I guess we're we can go into spoiler territory unless you have Mm -hmm. something else I don't know how much of a spoiler that is but uh, I want to get into the split screen thing Yeah, I think this is the best way I have ever seen split screen used in cinema I have seen like it's not even the first time Gaspar Noé did it, he did it in L'Occitana before this and uh, we we even talked about the movie today already that did it Requiem for a Dream had a a few scenes of that but this is really so purposeful to me the way the movie starts off in one screen with them both being in the picture them both being lined up and synced up with their lives you know and then the black bar crawling in as she slowly starts to lose it and and wants to wander off really hit me I saw my grandpa go through that and even in the very beginning when you said um the first 20 minutes felt to you like nothing was happening I saw it basically in her eyes I I I knew of the first moment okay she she's kind of losing it right now she doesn't know where she's exactly going and just the way it is portrayed, with him not realizing yet as to what is going on, we we constantly see him. We see him work, and I think he's typing at that moment when she first wanders off, and the realization that she's going further and further by the minute really made the the first twenty minutes super intense to me. Like the, those are those are horrific <laughs> from for me personally. But yeah, I. I can well, see how thing, a lot of that is probably just my personal experience that I bring to it.
3: Well, I had this thought. It has to be me. I know there's no way that nothing is happening, right? It's just I'm not getting it. And I think I don't get it because I just don't know what it is, really. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, it's not expressed in a way that I would understand because it is so subtle and probably so real to life. Like, it's expertly done. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem for me. It's like, it's so expertly done that I just don't get it. You know, like, it's just an experience I couldn't think about. Like, I didn't really get she had dementia until he had got her back home. Mm -hmm. And then when he was, like, having the conversation at the table, well, more chastising at the table, I was like, oh, right, she probably has dementia. Yeah. But, like, that didn't click to me for, like, the first half an hour or so. Mm -hmm. But it was probably obvious to most other people.
0: Yeah, I think so. That that might have been, like, a big problem for you in the beginning there.
3: See, yeah, this is what I'm thinking. I, like, I know the film is expertly done, and I know it's fantastic. I just don't think it's for me. And Mm. I can imagine, like, if you go through something like that with a grandparent or a parent or whatever... This film must be incredibly difficult to watch. It must be so hard. Yeah. But it's just like something I don't know. You would probably like um, The Father uh, more. I was, I was thinking about that this entire time. Actually. Yeah,
1: because this one is like really, really close to life, as you said. It's almost doc- a documentary style. Not the style, but documentary, you know,
0: the experience, the the
1: heart of it. Yeah, the experience. Yeah. As in with The Father, we have a more putting yourself in the shoes of it's a lot more trippy, I would say, and you still get the, the emotions and, you know, and the portrayal of the dementia and... I think you'll probably like that one more. Or have you already watched
3: it? Well, yeah, I I was thinking that. um, Because I was thinking about The Father, because I was trying to think of other films, like the center around dementia. Mm. And I thought about The Father, and I know I haven't seen it, but one, I love Anthony Hopkins. But also, I just assume it's a more, I don't want to say dramatized, but more exaggerated version of dementia. Like, it displays it in a much more, well, in a much less subtle way. Yeah, it's yeah you know,
0: the big difference is basically that with this one you're looking from the outside in. You're more in the shoes of Dar of Dario Argento's character, like the yeah that's what I was thinking the yeah. the people around him and how they are affected or how they try to cope with it. Whilst in the father, you're very much in um, Anthony Hopkins' perspective and. Yeah, you're looking from the inside out and therefore you're you're obviously more understanding without knowing it beforehand.
3: Yeah. yeah. So, like, I'm, I am struggling to, like, um even justify why I don't like it. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not the film's fault. There are things about the film that I don't like that I just, you know, sincerely think that the film kind of failed at. But I can notice it's great. I mean... As you said, the split screen is an incredible concept for this film. Yeah. Because obviously it's been done before, but Mm -hmm. it's been, it's rarely been done to this extent. And for people that are literally sometimes in the same place, (laughs) you know, oftentimes when you show on split screen, it's for two different people at different places, you know, but sometimes in this and a lot of the times they're in the same room. They're next to each other, but there's still a split screen. Yeah, they're both and in just... both screens. Yeah, and it's shown us like how vicarious their lives are, despite not actually having any real connective tissue besides history. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't really have anything together anymore, except for a past. Also, the long takes are like really impressive. and made even more so when they cross over, like the perspectives cross over, because (laughs) Mm -hmm. the accuracy of the movements they had to achieve to get the shots consistent Mm -hmm. is crazy. Because sometimes it's obviously two cameras, but then other times it just can't be, you know, where, like, they're facing each other, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, well, obviously there would be a camera right behind you to film this perspective, so they had to have done the same scene twice to get the other perspective. Yeah. How you know that, like, the acting is insane, the directing is great. I can, I can for sure say that given watching both Darren Aronofsky and Gaspar Noe, Gaspar easily is trumping him in the directing department. Like, there is so much life in the camera <laughs> itself, like it's not just watching these people you know the camera itself is trying to tell the story of these people but there are there are some parts i just i i don't jive with you know the opening song
0: yeah i i actually have a note on it what what did you want to say about it
3: it's beautiful and it's a good song but i don't know like it feels this this is like, <laughs> okay, this might just be my bias against French movies, <laughs> but French films always have seen, like, seemed a little pretentious to me a lot of the time, and this one little insertion of this song in the beginning is like, it feels, I know it's not, but it feels like it. the film's going like, ooh, look at me, I'm making a good movie, you know? like I know what you mean,
0: the- and i have an interesting thought on it actually um so i feel a a lot of this general feeling towards french films being pretentious i mean you're not alone with that sentiment i think a lot of it stems back from french new wave and how the general spirit during the french new wave was anything that is established or anything that is regularly used we throw out of the out of the window and will do it all from ground up new rules new everything so that obviously leads to to that feeling of they feel like they are better than us they do they they feel like they got to do everything different however this opening with the uh, mon amour la rose i think what was the song mon Ami la rose is so much Like, you you haven't seen the other Gaspar Noé, but the step of uh, Requiem to the Whale is, like, probably the same step that Gaspar Noé took with this movie. But every other movie of his is basically more the Requiem extremity side of filming. And then all of a sudden he made Vortex, which is even further down the artsy, I'm gonna make a slow arthouse movie now so the mon ami la rose is instantly i feel like to establish okay guys just to be sure i know you expect a certain kind of movie of me i'm gonna do something completely different now so it, it instantly establishes kind of this we're going in this direction of french filmmaking now and also I looked up the year of when it got out, uh, that song was released. That song was pretty much released with uh, Gaspar Noé being born. So this is instantly his first connection he draws from. He is getting older. He is like 60, I think now. And he can't always stay with, yeah, we'll do a movie about sex, a movie about drugs, a movie about partying, you know, whatever. He's also getting older. Like he is facing those struggles and that song feels like hell of an old song when it starts playing but that song is Gaspar Noé's age
3: that's nice I think why it feels so pretentious to me is one one it feels very like Tarantino in the way that it's like I'm gonna use an old song and then I'm gonna put it in like black and white and change the aspect ratio you know, it just feels that like... That is the something... original music video of, of that. I know, that's yeah. what I mean. Like It like it feels like something a student filmmaker would do to make their film look better. Mm-hmm. To use something that's so out of the box. But it's so out of the box it's in, you know? Like, it's the first thing I know what someone you mean, yeah. would, would think to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, just, I wasn't a big fan. And I feel like a lot of the film is really on the nose i hate that some of it is so subtle that i can barely understand it but then we have the song and then when she wakes up the mother the the radio is on <laughs> and the radio's talking about old news, and then when she leaves and she's in the supermarket that radio's on and it's all of, all of it is talking about growing old and dying like i get it Okay, you can relax on the not so subtle subtext. <laughs> it's too much.
0: It worked for me since you know it it explored parts of the fears or the the struggles you faced. Then that they couldn't really put in that story because it's not the focus of it. It's not. It's supposed to be the short period of time there. I felt like it used the additional channel of storytelling well to give us additional ideas surrounding the whole story i dislike when when stuff like that gets used as the main information provider you know as just an exposition thing and here it it adds little themes to it it's very obvious with it sure I, i give you that but it it definitely adds to it stuff that wouldn't be there otherwise
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I just felt like there was too much of it. Fair enough. I felt, like, even doubling up on the radio, they're, like, so close to each other, it's, like, within a ten minute span. It feels like he couldn't decide whether to do one or the other, so he just kept both. But, I don't (laughs) know.
0: I I made a lot of notes on the visuals. The colours of the poster, the red and the yellow, pretty much throughout the whole film... Both protagonists are wearing yet a uh, yellow and red, mm-hmm. so we we have that resemble even the
1: apartment colors at night. Yeah, it's very like
0: exactly orangey. Yeah, yeah exactly, and oftentimes the lighting and it also ports this duality of them drifting apart. And I feel like even the coloring, so both of these colors are warm colors. You know, they're, they're trying their best. They are sympathetic to each other, these characters. But they are different colors. They are drifting apart. They are disconnected. There's a moment when she goes to sleep. It, it's like one hour in or uh, a little bit earlier than that. When she goes to sleep and he's still sitting at the couch, we have those bird's eye view shots looking down.
1: When he's in, in his like little room? Yeah. Like that one that with the sofa
0: yeah exactly he is sitting on the sofa yeah. she is sit. she is laying in the bed and um, the yeah. sofa mm-hmm. the bed their clothes and their head together with the split screen almost form a complete yin yang symbol oh it is really fast gone again but i i, I caught it this time and i was like oh damn that's beautiful
1: <laughs> yeah i have a question for you because you watched it uh, two times? twice yes No, twice yeah did you get a different experiences we have like you know some most very many scenes with split screen did you notice more of her side or east side Hmm.
0: I should have probably tried to this time really pay attention to the things that I don't naturally want to pay attention to, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I feel like a a lot of what the movie does well is bringing our attention to the right part of the screen. Like, I I feel for the most part, you're focused on one screen and really paying attention to that and not really missing anything at the other that is significant to the story per se. I realized a few times that the gaspino does this with the the black screen super short it flashes to black i feel like he did that sometimes only on one side to suddenly guide you to that part of the screen to like okay wait something mm-hmm. is, is about to happen here you should pay attention to this so it, it would have been an active trying to watch away from where he wants me to watch he was yeah. yeah i i think i had pretty much watching wise the same experience where it's not like i i paid attention to the other screen more this time i feel, i feel like he is very good with guiding where he wants you yeah. to look
1: it is a, a testament to his to his skill you know because you you do have two subjects on both sides of your screen where things might be happening and he's able to guide your attention to one side only
0: exactly if he wouldn't be good enough with that chances are you miss 50 percent of the movie
1: yeah <laughs> you <know>? yeah
0: true <laughs> and i don't feel yeah, like i missed I, anything
1: <laughs> i wonder if you go into i i don't know who is the poor bastard that would watch this movie like twice or um <laughs> three times over just to n- focus on one perspective only True. each time, you know, and to (laughs) to see if there is a different experience there. But yeah, you should try it. Now you're like, you know. (laughs) Next watch. That's what you can do.
0: There's a lot of smaller themes in this movie that aren't really that deeply explored, but they come up and I thought they were interesting. So there's this one scene how you mentioned crit when they are sitting inside again he just brought her home and he is having the talk with her that she can't just run away and she's saying people are kind and he says no they are terrible i thought it's interesting that it's i don't know if this this is even intended it might not be at all but it kind of showcases how fear drives hatred how she is not afraid at all of going outside she doesn't realize where the danger lies in her going outside because she always used to do it and she doesn't comprehend that she will lose direction, she doesn't realize that she will get disorientated and doesn't know what mm-hmm. she's doing anymore yeah. which she does, so so the fear is missing in her and she, she is not afraid or has nothing bad to say about the neighborhood whilst all he sees is fear for her and it channels itself even if it was just meant maybe as a lie so that she doesn't go out anymore that he says God. they are all horrible they are bad people in paris but even if it's just a lie then it's still hatred that sprung out of fear and i think that says a lot about like you know racism or take whatever hate group you you yeah. want to put it out
1: that's a good observation interesting
0: I think it's fascinating that this is, as we put it, kind of the first movie by Gaspar Noé that, that has no classical horror aspects to it. Like, every other movie of his could, if at all, probably be considered horror. Or I guess Love not, but but other than that. And this is kind of the, the most horrific themes of them all like getting old, the fear of dying. And for me specifically, so much of how I value myself is probably my intellect, where I'm proud that I can express myself. I'm proud of the things that I I learned, the things that I know. And losing that, losing memories, losing all the things that I experienced before is probably the most horrific thing. I think I'm more afraid of (laughs) <laughs> you know slowly de- losing yourself yeah, slowly yeah. losing myself than just having an abrupt end to my life that's yeah. Horrible. it says
1: uh, gaspar puts in the movie he dedicates the movie to all those whose brain will decompose before their hearts right yeah so, true true it's a very it's horrific yeah. but i think that while well, the movie might not be as shocking throughout you know it mm-hmm. is a very intense experience. Oh yeah. But the ending is:
0: Yeah, there's, there's parts of this that feel straight up like out of a horror movie, like at yeah. least to me, with, with like the context and, and everything. Mm-hmm. It, I specifically wrote it down uh, t- surrounding the scene where she empties out his office where she throws away all the stuff and flushes Mm -hmm. it down the toilet. The letters. In that moment, I feel like it's even as if he really, he staged it almost like a horror film. At that moment, it's like she is the, she is like possessed. She's like the demon taking Mm -hmm. over her and tormenting the the residents of the home, you know?
1: Yeah. It does feel like that. Like she's not, you know, herself, like something took over her and she's doing stuff that she knows that she wouldn't do otherwise right mm-hmm.
0: i also like the whole uno reverse cards they kind of pull at the end where when he's having a heart attack and laying down on the floor she is sleeping in the other screen and she doesn't realize the problems yet. she doesn't realize yeah. yeah and and you have the same situation of god damn it finally please wake up it's, it's about time you yeah. save your husband <laughs> Which is like just the opposite of the beginning.
1: Yeah, throughout the movie, he's more of the one who, you know, mm-hmm. I, it's dismissive. It's, uh, you know, he's living his own life. He has his little club and it's a club, right? A yeah. Film critic.
0: club. I think book club. but Or yeah. book club. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: And now, yeah, she's the one that is not paying attention. Not because she doesn't want to. It's because, you know, she's fast asleep.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: there's also a scene happening in this which again reminded me of of uh, requiem for a dream um so there's this dialogue between the son and the father Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) i I wrote on the dialogue our home is full of medications and full of druggies indeed that's pretty much the conversation that in requiem for a dream the the son and the mother could have had you know um they are both realizing that they are addicts in their own way mm-hmm. and having an adult and someone light-hearted fun conversation about it and making fun of themselves whilst Requiem played in a time and maybe also just because of their different culture in a place where you couldn't have that open conversation and 20 years on at least in France, it seems like those conversations about illegal drugs and the problems one might have with them can be had. So I think that's an interesting mm-hmm. time yeah. capsule right there. Oh, and one one final thing about the presentation of it all, Crit, you mentioned earlier that in some cases it's not even that they are split up. So you have that that one scene. When the father and the son are discussing putting her into... Or putting them both, I guess, into a retirement home. With the father being on one side.
1: Mm-hmm. Or on the sofa.
0: Yeah, the the son being on the other. And the mother kind of being split up in the middle. In between them. Really a lovely use case of it. Not only is the discussion mainly surrounding her and her problem. But it is also that she literally doesn't know on which side to stand on. You know, she, she can't comprehend it.
1: Yeah, she's not aware of yeah. what's going on.
0: Exactly. So my first watch, I loved the whole idea of, okay, they are having different perspectives. And I also got the idea of, okay, even if the sun, for example, takes over one of the screens, that's those are still two very different perspectives and outlooks on life. And the the concept makes sense. I was confused the first time around, As to why in some of those scenes you would have, for example, when the father dies, I I think is the most obvious example. You have the son kind of just laying in the lap of the mother. In both screens, you can see both of them fully.
1: Um, I don't remember the scene. Is it still the split screen?
0: Yeah, it's in the the hospital. Um, They're still split screen. They are just sitting on the hallway right outside of the room where the father just died in in the hospital bed.
1: And is it like part of their body is in one of the screens and the other in the other screen? Because I, I don't remember exactly the scene.
0: On the left screen, you had a pretty much a close up of both of them. So you could see them. Yeah, mm-hmm. taking over a big part of the screen you had the faces and you could pay attention to the expression on the right screen the camera was uh standing a few meters further back and you could see both of their full bodies on the mm-hmm. um little bench that they were sitting on and
1: yeah i think i remember yeah
0: what i think gaspene did there was that even though both fit in both screens one of the screens is still dedicated to one of the characters each. I feel like that the close-up shot is dedicated to the son character. He is really aware of the situation. He knows what just happened. He knows the father died. He is fully comprehending the situation. Whilst the mother, even though she comforts him, she is still only like semi-aware of what just happened she doesn't realize her husband just died so the camera is really stepping back it's her perspective is a very distant one to the situation to the reality yeah Yeah,
1: she's distant from it she's not really there yeah i I didn't think about it that way yeah Mm -hmm. and he's more in his feelings he's you know and he thinks that he has his mother there you know Mm -hmm. Probably not fully, but he's clinging into that comfort that his mother could give before, but now she really can't give it fully. Mm -hmm. Uh, All she can do is stroke his head, right? Yeah.
0: And there's there's even more stuff going on visually. Like, you could get into color theory. I looked up a bit. Uh, Yellow um, often stands for fear, for impatientness for betrayal so and the father is mostly dressed in yellow red is the the more obvious warmth and love and you know as we pointed out Mm -hmm. she she doesn't have the fear she doesn't have the reason to be anything but loving and then it gets even more interesting because there's scenes where despite him always being dressed in yellow and her always being dressed in red there's moments when The lighting of the rooms is flipped so he is standing in a red room and she in a yellow room and Mm. you could like start to (laughs) go down that rabbit hole and try to analyze okay what's 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 the color implication here now but yeah they're the
1: explorer but but for colors yeah for you
0: there's i i i think there's a lot in just the the nuances that has that went into the decisions being made and also as i pointed out earlier uh, and i forgot kind of about that the fact that this is kind of like the biggest fear the biggest horror of it all and then he <laughs> went ahead to cast dario Argento as the main character yeah <laughs> how how perfect is that i uh, it might be my favorite meta <laughs> meta acting ever <laughs> casting ever yeah, I I freaking love this movie. There's something about super I- intense, extreme directors suddenly making a slow, intimate, small story, and and it just gets me. I similar to to the premiere of the whale, I was crying insanely much uh, watching Vortex the first time in the cinema.
1: Uh, well, couldn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah. Jesus. It it hit me. It hit me quite a lot.
1: Like just the 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 scene when he's dying, um, it's so painful to watch. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen a death portrayed like that ever.
0: And even how one part of the screen, like his part of the screen, just stays black after that. Just that visual of Mm -hmm. half of the screen is gone now. Like we lost that half of the screen. We lost him. It really made you feel it. it. god damn that
1: yeah the absence yeah
0: for sure that hurt it
1: hurt Did gaspar why (laughs) why (laughs) just having us confronting death on screen like this Mm -hmm.
0: so we want to do ratings
3: yeah i don't i don't i don't want to do ratings
0: (laughs) I, i don't blame you at all by the way for for not enjoying this and any listener who, who might be like yeah that was boring and slow it's a very artsy movie I am aware
3: it is I can't physically put it a 5 or below because that would imply that it's average or bad I'm gonna give it a 7 same as Requiem mm-hmm. same as Requiem because it it's the same it's the same thoughts behind it regardless like i can see how well made it is but i just don't mm-hmm. have the interest in it personally to put it anywhere above that
0: fair enough yeah it's at a eight for me it's a nine for me a pretty high nine gotta say
1: and that's a wrap on today's discussion next week we are diving into the evil dead franchise starting with Evil Dead Rise, the latest entry to the Evil Dead family, being praised by the public and critics for still keeping up the reputation of the franchise. Directed by Lee Cronin, starring Lily Sullivan and Elisa Sutherland.
3: We'll also be watching Evil Dead, the 2013 remake of the original 1981 classic. It's one of the few remakes of an already classic movie that truly deserves its title. Directed by Fede Alvarez, director of Don't Breathe, another contemporary horror film of much acclaim, will be experiencing the true horror potential of this franchise.
0: We are also going to watch The Evil Dead, the 1981 directorial debut by Sam Raimi. It was a super low budget movie that Sam in DIY fashion made with his friends in the woods and slowly grew into a phenomenon. It is known for his practical effects and generally shocking scenes for its time. If you don't want to get spoiled for any of these three movies, you have two weeks to prepare. I'm George.
3: I'm Bia. I'm Crit.
0: And you are listening to 3 Years Per Movie.